Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from lead pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. This morning we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, I, I hope you do. Um, if you have your Bibles, whether an electronic version or a hard copy version, I'm going to ask you to turn to uh, Luke chapter 10. And in Luke chapter 10, we're going to read from an encounter that, that Jesus had. Um, and I want us to pick up in, in, in verse 10. I mean in verse 25 of chapter 10. And uh, read verses 25 and 26, and then we're going to pause for just a second. Uh, Jesus has been doing some teaching, and uh, we see now he's about to have an encounter with one who was kind of present for that teaching. Verse 25 says this, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. He was going to test Jesus. And he said, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? This is Jesus asking a question. What's written in the law? How do you read it? And so here's, here's something that's taken place in the life of Jesus, this, in, this encounter. And this was not an uncommon question for a rabbi to be asked. In fact, it was a, a kind of a normal question. It would be kind of like asking a politician, you know, where, that's running for office, where do you stand on immigration? Or, or, or whether you, where do you stand on health care? What's your foreign policy? It, it would, asking, asking a rabbi this question about eternal life kind of sets the stage and gives you great insight into that rabbi's basic theology, basic understanding of God. And so Jesus, you know, being thought of as a rabbi only in his day, many did not know that he was the son of God yet, he, he engages the question. But now here's how Jesus answers the question, as he does so often as you read the gospel story. He answers the question with a what? With a question. He, he, he says to the lawyer, okay, you're a lawyer, what does the law say? You know, what does the law say about this question? And in other words, what do, what do the first five books of the Old Testament, that would have been considered the law, what do those first five books say about the question you asked? So pick up in, in, in verse 27, and we see this, this lawyer responding. He, and he answered him, he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, he said, do this, or he said, you have spoken correctly. Do this and you will live. And so it kind of seems like that would, you know, be over. Jesus has agreed with the lawyer, said, man, you've answered well. It's awesome. And, and quite frankly, that was an incredible statement because what Jesus was saying, yeah, I agree with you. All of the law can be narrowed down, pulled down to those, those two statements. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now the reason that's so remarkable is because the Jews had about 613 laws on their books that they were to be following, that their lives were to be, you know, pursuing. And so for that to get narrowed down to, to just two was quite remarkable. But now the, this, this lawyer does something in verse 29. I want you to look at what, what verse 29 says. It says, but he, talking about this lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, again, I want to pause there and, and kind of point out two things. This is not really part of the message, but I want to point out um, just something that's dumb that we fall in the habit of. 
And that is, it says that this lawyer decides with Jesus he's going to self-justify. It is the dumbest thing in the world for you or I to try to justify ourselves to Jesus. If you are reading God's word or you're hearing it taught and you start thinking or start saying to somebody else, yeah, but you're trying to justify yourself to Jesus. You know, you're, Jesus is the only one who can justify you. You can't justify yourself to Jesus. You just got to let him do that work. So it's really, really dumb. And so what, what's about to happen with this attorney was like, he's probably a really smart guy. But this was a dumb move strategically, you know, to come to Jesus and think, I'm going to justify this. I'm going to work my way out of this. So I'm going to ask him this question. Now, when he asks this question, so who is my neighbor? And Jesus kind of takes it on and says, you know what? Good question. You know, let, let me really deal with this with you. Now, here's one of the things that I, I want you to be captured by. It, it captured my heart as I studied into this more. Kind of did some cultural background and kind of what was going on in uh, the, the, the legal realm of that day on the, in the Jewish law. And because when you, when, you, when you read that question, you may think that this guy is legitimately trying to figure out, you know, what, what is, what is Jesus' definition of a neighbor? But as you press into that, you realize that what this guy was doing was trying to exclude people. He wasn't saying, dear Jesus, would you tell me who my neighbor is so my heart can expand and I would embrace more people with love. It's not what that guy was doing. That guy was trying to say, Jesus, how small can I make my circle so I only have to love so many people that are like me? Or people that, that I like. See, Jesus, Jesus stands against religion that, that does that. Jesus is not content with a definition that tries to be exclusive in who can come and experience the love of God or who can be a part of God's loving community. And this guy was trying to shrink what Jesus was trying to expand. So Jesus says, sure, I'll take that question on too. And so Jesus tells, answers this question first with a story and then another question. And so Jesus tells a story that many of us are very familiar with. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. And so let's, let's read that together, if you would. We're going to pick up in verse 30 and read the remainder of this section of Scripture. And so Jesus replied, he tells this story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now that was like a highway. This was a regular road that many, many people traveled on. This man was going down, um, and it says, he, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw the man and he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... As he journeyed, came to where he was, where this man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And then Jesus asked, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the warrior answered and said, the one who showed him mercy. 
And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I love what Frederick Buckner in his book, Beyond Words, wrote. He said, when Jesus said to love your neighbor to this lawyer, he was clarifying this idea of neighbor. This, this lawyer wanted this legal definition. And in that day, it mostly just meant someone who was Jewish legally and someone who resided near them. But Jesus instead opens this box up spreads it open and uh, just makes this so much bigger. And Jesus uses the word neighbor here and gives it a much larger meaning. And then Jesus did something to kind of really uh, stir up probably the anger of this attorney. He made the, the hero of the story a Samaritan. Which literally, Jews of that day hated so much that when they said the word Samaritan, they would spit. I mean, they were just, they despised Samaritans so much. They were kind of like a natural enemy to the Jews. And so Jesus is now teaching in the context of love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. And he makes this, this Samaritan a hero. And I think there are some attitudes that Jesus is putting on display uh, about our culture as well as the culture in which this, he told this story. In the Jewish culture as well as our culture today, there's some attitudes about who could be your neighbor and who should we be generous to. And so I want us to look at the three attitudes from this, this story real quickly and then make some application to them. First attitude that I see here in the story of the Good Samaritan is this. What's mine is mine, is yours, or excuse me. What's yours is mine and I'll take it. It'll get out in a minute. What's yours is mine and I'll take it. Now there are a lot of people in our world today that have that attitude and their attitude is basically the world owes me something. You know, the world owes me some, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it. That was the attitude of the robbers in the story. They saw this man, they saw what he had, and they figured they deserved it. What's yours is mine, I'll take it. And so they, they, they took it. They, they would grab anything possible. They, they, they have this mindset that it's owed to me anyway. And some people think it's a, a poverty mindset, but really it's a materialistic mindset. It's just a materialistic, self-centered mindset. Some of you may have worked for an employer who may have come to you at some time and said, hey, you know, this is kind of a gray area. Some people might think what I'm about to say to be unethical. But you know, our, our budget and our company works a certain way and our numbers are contingent on doing business a certain way, on making money a certain way. And what they're doing in that moment is they're putting pressure on you to do something unethical. And it's easy in that moment to get kind of sucked into that. But when we do so, we become robbers. We become someone who says what's yours is mine. So maybe something not quite as, as bold as that. Maybe it's just something as simple as taking something that's a resource at your work, taking it home for your own personal use and gain. Maybe something as simple as a pen or, or whatever. It seems small, but what it does is it, there's this heart that says, you know, I deserve that. They owe me this. They haven't given me mine. And when that happens, we become, we become robbers. It's a robbing attitude. There's a second attitude that Jesus has in this story. Um, attitude number two is simply this. What's mine is mine, I'll keep it. 
First is what's yours is mine, I'll take it. Secondly is what's mine is mine and I'll keep it. And I would say this is probably the one that most of us in the room struggle with. This what's mine is mine, I'll keep it. And what it causes us to do is to neglect the needs of others. And this, is, this is attitude is prevalent uh, in the life of the priest and the Levite. It shows up in the story. Uh, this is their attitude. They, and again, I don't think it's because they were necessarily evil. I think it was just because they got too busy. They were just so busy, they were preoccupied with, with their stuff. They probably rationalized that the, the business that they had on the road they were on, maybe they were heading in Jerusalem to, to lead a worship service or something like that, that they didn't have time for this man who was half dead alongside the road because they were, they were too busy. And they realized that helping this guy was going to cost them something. It was at least going to cost them some time. Have you ever made an excuse as to why you couldn't stop and help somebody because you were on the way to do something good? You know, you might, you might have been about to do something good, but see, we rationalize things. You know, uh, sometimes we'll think, well, that's kind of the government's responsibility. You ever had a thought like I've had before when I've seen somebody struggling with a need and thought, well, that's why I pay my taxes. You know, that's, it's, it's so easy for us to begin to think, you know, what's mine is mine and I'll keep it. And we, we selfishly hold on to our time. We hold on to our talents. We hold on to our treasure. We hold on to our testimony. We won't even share that with people. You know, those religious leaders in that day are people that we, we don't want to admit that we're like. We don't want to think of ourselves that way. But when we live that way, not only are we like them, but we're also a little bit like the robbers because I think oftentimes we rob the church, maybe in ways we don't think through fully or don't, don't understand. One of the ways you rob this church, and some of you are saying, Joe, you're kidding me. But one of the ways we rob the church is by choosing not to get involved. By choosing to just show up and, and, and sit. You know, you've probably heard me say before, if you've ever heard me talk on, on ministry or spiritual gifts, that God gave me gifts, but they're not for me. They're for you. And God gave you gifts that aren't for you. They're for me and everybody else who walks through these doors. They're, they're gifts from God, spiritual gifts from God that he's given. Not for our own personal edification, but for others. And so if we're not using that, if we're not using the time God gives us, the spiritual gifts, the talents, the treasure, the testimony that God gives, if we're not using that for others, we're robbing the church of Jesus. When you're not using the spiritual gift that God has given you to greet or to serve or to teach, you, you are in a sense robbing. You're cheating. You're cheating me. If I don't use my gifts, I'm cheating, I'm cheating you. We cheat one another when we don't do this. And it can be talent, time, treasure, testimony. See, we're the body of Christ. That's what God calls us. We're the body of Christ. We're called to serve together. God, under his divine sovereignty, decided to bring us together. To make us this family known as River Bluff Church on an outpost in, in the city of North Charleston. A gospel outpost for the purpose of glorifying him. 
And that, that connection and that sharing is supposed to be so deep and rich that when Paul wrote to the church at Rome, look what he said to them in Romans chapter 12. He says, in Christ, so if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, if Christ lives in you, we who are many form one body and each member does what? Belongs to one another, to all the others. Here's a really scary thought. You belong to me. Doesn't that scare you to death? Here's a scary thought for me. I belong to you. Really scary when I look over at Gary Weiss. Just scares me. But it's the truth. This is the truth of God's word. This is how powerful that's supposed to be in our lives. And that includes our, our talents and our time and our treasure, our testimony. Are you living out of what's mine is what yours is mine and I take it? Or are you living out of what's mine is mine and I'll keep it? Or as Jesus puts on display in this story, there's a third attitude that we see from the Samaritan. And it's this third attitude is this, what's mine is yours, I'll share it. What's mine is yours, I'll share it. I love what William Barclay said about this story. He said, in a world that is bent on getting, Christ's followers become bent on giving because they know that what we keep we lose, but what we give we keep we have forever. I love the thought of that. See, it's, that's the attitude of the Samaritan. Of the Samaritan. Now here's, here's the, the, what I think is the core teaching here. That regardless of our connection with a person. Whether they you know, are a total stranger. Whether they're a casual friend or a best friend or a relative. To follow Jesus means for us that we see potentially all people as our neighbors. Our, our, our neighbors aren't merely relegated to the people on our cul-de-sac, the people who look like us or act like us, live in our zip code, who have the same skin color as us. That, that's not what our neighbor means. Our neighbor is anyone. And according to this definition in this story, it's anyone, especially those in need. We see out of the life of this good Samaritan that he's not stingy, that he gives generously. First of all, he gives his time. He stops. He, he stops and he cares for this guy. And then he gives of his talent. Apparently he had some capacity. He could have, you know, he could have been on our first aid team here. Our, 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 that team because he was able to, to apply medication. He was able to wrap up this guy's wounds. And then not only that, he put him on his own beast, his animal. He, he carried him to this inn. And there he spent the night caring for him through the night, kind of nursed him back to health. And then he turned him over to the innkeeper's care and paid the innkeeper for the care that he would need. And he said, I'll come back. I want you to keep a detailed record of everything it costs for this guy to stay here. And I'll pay you when I come back through. So he was intent on, on, on owning this. God calls us into that. And, and so many of us, we'll, maybe we'll, we'll give some time to somebody in need. But then when it starts to infringe on our resources, man, we back off. You know, we pull back and say, okay, that's kind of over the line there. But we, we see this in this, you know, in this, in this Samaritan's life. He didn't draw the line there. Now, please don't get me wrong. I, I need you to hear this. The Bible does speak to the importance of making a budget. Sticking to that budget so you don't live in debt. So you don't spend money that you don't have. But, but let me ask this. 
Do you have space built into your budget? Have you budgeted some money to care for somebody that God brings into your path that may be in need? That just needs a little extra help? Or would you be willing in your, in your budget, you know most all of us when we build a budget we have a little, little mad money, a little spending money, a little money extra for maybe entertainment or something. Would you be willing to go without that non-essential in order to care for somebody else? Would you sacrifice somebody like that, something like that for the sake of somebody else? Maybe to lift somebody else's spirit. Maybe to give to them generously. Last weekend, um, I was at a conference uh, learning about how to help churches that were having, we'll just call it a near-death experience. I don't know if you know that there are churches out there having near-death experiences, but there are churches out there, their, their doors are about to be closed forever. There are churches out there who banks are foreclosing on their property. Um, there are churches out there who have just gotten down to five, six, ten members and they're no longer able to, to keep the doors open. And this, uh, there, there's a movement going on in Denver and greater Denver area and in the state of Colorado where churches are being repurposed and kind of replanted and revitalized. And so I, I got invited to attend and, and to kind of learn to bring back to help churches in, in our association and in our state. Think about this. In one of the sessions, uh, there was a breakout session that I went to and it had to do, the guy that was leading it, was talking about how often those churches began to kind of pull up the, you know, the, 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 the the drawbridge and build them, put a moat around and, and they're, they're no longer generous at all. They just want to hoard and hold on to everything. And he began talking about how the spirit of the churches that are being repurposed and revitalized, that God plants a spirit of great generosity in them. And they begin to, to want to give out. And this guy shared a personal story from his life on how, how difficult it is for us to be generous. Even, even those in ministry and pastors. And when he shared the story after he was done teaching, I went up to him and said, have you ever written that story down? And he said, well, yeah. I, I said, would you email it to me? Because I want to share it with our church because it just touched me so deeply. And since, you know, I've told you before, if God messes with me, guess what? He's going to mess with you too. So here's, here's the story. And um, he, he, he sent it to me. And this is what he, he, he shared. He said that his family had gone on um, uh, their week of vacation, their summer vacation, and had just gotten into the town where they were going to be spending the week at the beach. Um, they were about 10 minutes from uh, making their way to, to this beach house. And they were going to stop for gas, uh, fill the car up before they, before they got there. And they pulled up to this red light and they got rear-ended at a red light and so immediately he checked to make sure his family was okay and uh, he told his wife why don't you call the police he got out of the car uh, to make his way back to the other car to make sure they were all okay and the, there was a young man getting, getting out of the car and he asked him are you okay and they said yeah we're all okay and uh, he said well my wife's already you know, called the police so maybe they'll, they'll be here soon so he starts talking to this young guy and finds out that uh, the, the lady in the car was his girlfriend they had just moved to this new city because because he had been promised a job that he was supposed to start working uh, next week. And the, the pastor told us, he said, you know what, we could tell that they probably didn't have a whole lot. And so when the officer got there, he got them to pull their cars over into a parking lot. And after hearing the story and writing everything down, the police officer finally said, you know, if you're wanting to file this with the insurance, I'm going to have to give this guy a ticket. And he said, well, about how much is that ticket? He said probably $150, $250, something like that. And... Uh, 
he said he saw the young man cringe. And so he asked the officer, he said, you've, you've done a lot of traffic wrecks. He said, how much do you, do you think it would cost to get my car fixed? And uh, he said, well, I'm guessing about 400 bucks. He said, I've, I'm pretty good at judging these things now after years of doing this. About 400 bucks. And so the pastor thought about it for a minute. And he said, okay, here's, here's what I want to do. I, do, I don't want to file with insurance. Um, I don't want you to write this guy a ticket. Would you just give me $200? And we'll just call it even and we'll just drive off. We won't exchange information or anything. We'll just, we'll just go. And the guy says, yes, thank you so much. Yes, I, I'll do that. And so he, um, he goes up to uh, his girlfriend. They scrounge up $200. And the pastor said it kind of felt like it was all the money they had, you know, in the world. But he gave him the $200. And um, the police drive off. They talk for a few more minutes. And then the uh, pastor goes back and gets in his car. And, uh, you know, they, they start getting out of this parking lot now and try to get back to the intersection. The pastor said, I made sure I got behind him this time, though. Um, but uh, he said, we, we, uh, as, we're, as we're waiting in line to get out of the parking lot, I just said to my family how thankful I was that we could bless, bless them this way. He told them the story of what had happened and what he had done. And, and his teenage son from the back seat says, you didn't bless them. And he said, what, what, what do you mean? He said, well, Dad, you didn't bless him. You know what's going to happen. You're going you're to go home. You're going to uh, call one of your buddies on the phone and, you know, he's going to tell you he'll work you a deal and he's probably going to do it for less than $200. You're probably going to make money on the deal. We didn't bless him, Dad. And Dad said, you know, he was turning red with embarrassment. He looked at his wife and said, you need to talk to your son. And um, so he, he looked in the mirror and he said, well, son, what, what, are, you, what are you saying we should do? What, what do you advocate that we should do? And the, the son said, well, well Dad... Here's, here's what I think it would look like for us to bless him. If, if we all took all the money we each had in our wallets and, and gave it to him. Just give him that $200 back and give him... Well, the dad said, now, he wanted us to make sure we understood this. The last stop they made before they left town that day was at the ATM. So they had a lot more cash than they normally carry around. And, and so did his son and so did his daughter. And so he said, if you can get your mom and your sister to go along with this, we'll do it. And they dove right in and said, yeah, let's do it. So they, they kind of worked it out and said, okay, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to follow this guy. And when we get to a place like at a red light or something, or if he pulls over and stops, what you're going to do is you're going to get out. You're going to give in the money. But you've got to say, Jesus wants you to have this. And his son said, Dad, can't can I just say, you know, God bless you? And he said, no, there's going to be no generic God stuff with an investment like this. You've got to tell him that, that Jesus wants you to have this. And so the son says, I'll do it. And so they get up to the next light, and they get stopped, and the young man gets out of the car, goes up. He's kind of over in this lane, and uh, bangs on his window. The, guy, the pastor said, I saw the guy jump, realized, you know, probably scared him, thought I wanted my money back or something like that. Or Anyway, the, the kid gives him the money and, and tells him, Jesus wants you to have this. And he said, the kid comes back and gets in his car. The light turns green. He gets in the left-hand lane to go to the gas station. The young man looks like he's trying to get over and can't get over so he pulls in a parking lot across the street from them and gets out and starts walking around and around his car just shaking his head not knowing what to do it looks like the guy pumps his gas and gets ready to get back in his car and the the kid across the street hollers and says what what, what how do I how do I deal with this and the pastor said that they they got in their car and they drove off and they never saw him again 
But here's the thing that the pastor said. He said, my kids are grown and gone now. But any time they talk about their favorite vacation memory, guess what it was? That moment. That moment in time where they gave in a way that was so radical. They never saw the outcome of their gift. But they, they knew God had done something in their own lives. And that's one of the things that happens when you give generously and sacrificially. When we move beyond this idea of what's yours is mine, I'll take it. Or what's mine is mine, I'll keep it. And we move to something larger. We move to, to what Jesus is teaching here that what's mine is yours and I'll share it. When we become those kinds of people, when we live out the teachings of Jesus in Acts chapter 20, God's word says to remember the words of the Lord Jesus. How himself he said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So here's kind of the big question as we think in this today. How, how can we, how can you and I, how can we develop hearts that are more like the good Samaritan than the robber's? Or the religious people that were displayed in the story. And I want to share just a few principles from God's word. That I believe will set us up. Both individually and corporately as a church. To be more generous at greater levels than we ever imagined. Now some of these are going to be reminders. Some of you are going to say I knew that. But here's, here's the truth about all of us. And I'm one of these. I have to be reminded of the powerful principles of Jesus' teaching. I need to have them said to me over and over again. Especially in two areas. You know what they are? Generosity and evangelism. Because we leak in those two areas like no other areas in our Christian life. How many of you have ever been in a service where evangelism was being spoken of or, or generosity and giving were being spoken of and you've made a decision that you're going to, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to live, you get inspired, you get inflated with doing the will of God for your life and then you get to the end of the next week and pssst, it's just deflated. Inspiration's gone. Because those areas, Satan challenges in such incredible ways. And so we've got to be reminded. We've got to remind each other. You've got to remind me about the powerful principles, the life-changing transformation principles from Jesus' word. And here's the first one. And again, this is a repeat. You'll know it. But here's what God's word teaches. You reap what you sow. You will reap what you sow. And again, not my principle. Straight out of God's word, Galatians chapter 6 verse 7, the Bible says, do not, on this issue, do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So you're just going to reap what you sow. Now, some pe please understand this is not a health, wealth gospel. This is not one of those things where you play tit for tat with God. You drop $10 in the offering plate and you expect, you know, a $100 check in the mail next week. This is not what this is about. It is a general principle for experiencing the transforming power of God in your life. Because one of the things that happens is God, somehow, when you give generously and sacrificially, God somehow, miraculously, makes it come back your way. Now here's the truth. If you're stingy and you're selfish with your resources or your time, one of the things that may happen is you may end up with more money than the person next to you. But one of the things you'll see less of is faithful friends. People who will stand by you in struggle, in times of need. Those, those will fall away. See, when we're generous, when we, when we give, especially give away money, 
It takes its power away from us. It no longer has power over us. But when we love it, when we hoard it, when we serve it, it has power over us. There, there's a reason why Jesus used the word mammon. Mammon is actually a, a, a god that gets worshipped and he will have control over you. You, you go, go on Google it. And you'll see that the images that come up are this demonic monster that will just gobble you up if you let mammon have power over you. See, the good Samaritan, you know, he could have he cut things short. He could have just bandaged the guy up and left him on the road. Or he could have bandaged him up and then taken him to the innkeeper, got him to the innkeeper and said, look, I just saved this guy's life. He's somebody else's problem now. But this guy didn't. He gave and he gave and he gave of himself. He even took care of him when he wasn't present with him. He was generous. He was over the top, above what would be expected. That great church reformer, Martin Luther, said this. He said, I have held many things in my hands, and I have lost them all. But whatever I have placed in the hand of God, I still possess. And that's just the truth. You see, the church, River Bluff Church... The church of Jesus should set the example. When the church does that, it inspires the world. Not long ago, I, I read a story about a, a church that inspired generously, just was generously uh, in, in their giving. And uh, I, I want to share it with you. It was, a, it was about a small church. And this was written by a pastor um, of a church that was a large mega church. They had 12 campuses at the time. And this is in the context. They were about a month away from opening their 13th campus. And their, um, this, his administrative assistant walks in with a letter in one hand and what looked like a check in the other hand. And this is what the letter said. It said, Dear Pastor, our church is located less than five minutes from the new campus you are building on the southwest side of our city. As you may know, it is often common for churches to feel a sense of competition with each other for fleshly reasons. We have wrestled with some of these emotions since we heard you were building a campus near us. But we want you to know that we believe in your church and what you are doing to reach this city for Jesus. We're praying for you as you launch this new Southwest campus. We have included in this letter a gift for your building fund. This was a sacrificial gift offering from our church to let you know how much we believe in what you're doing. We also give this to remind us that we're a family together serving this city. If, as Jesus said, your treasure is where your heart is, then we want you to know that our heart is for your success. We are praying and believing with you. And it was signed by the pastor of a little church down the road from their new campus. Now that, that pastor said, the, the administrative assistant started to move forward and hand him the check and he told her, no, I don't want to see it. Because as far as I'm concerned, they just paid for that building. You know, no matter how big or how small, it didn't matter anymore. Because he realized these people had, had gone way above and beyond what was standard. They, they, they were generous. And when you're generous, the amount is not the important thing. See, that, that spirit refreshes people. That spirit gives life. And they obviously wanted to do this. So first principle, you reap what you sow. A second principle that Jesus gives us in his word for living generously is this. That our generosity is an expression of lordship. When we're generous, we're expressing who our Lord is. And that's why the scripture tells us to give from the first fruits of our labor, not, not the leftovers. 
Proverbs chapter 3 verse 9 says this, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all that you produce. See, when you give generously, you're a reflection of the one you claim is your master. When you give generously, you, you, you look like Jesus, who we know gave his all on the cross. He was totally sold out paying your sin debt that you couldn't pay. He gave it all to pay that. And the Bible tells us that Jesus had all authority. God had given him all authority. So Jesus had authority over his own life. He did not have to do that. He had, he had the authority to steward his life any way that he wanted to. And that's why Jesus said, nobody takes my life. I lay it down of my own free will. Because he stewarded his life for you. He stewarded his life for me. Now here's the deal. God gives you and gives me much to steward. Much to steward. There's a financial planner named Dan Hart and this is what he says about that. He says the truth is God owns, we manage. We like to think of ourselves as owners. You know, own our car, own our house, own whatever. But that's not, that's not the clear teaching of scripture. God's word just simply says anything you have he owns and he just lets you manage that. So whether you have a lot or a little, the bet most you'll ever be is a, is a manager. In the scriptures, there's a great example for the church of being good stewards. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It's about the Macedonian church. Paul writes about this to the church at Corinth to explain what generous hearts looks like. He said this in, in verse 2 it's about the church. It says, although they were going through hard times and they were very poor, they were glad... To give generously. They gave as much as they could afford. And even more simply because they wanted to. They even asked and begged us to let them have the joy of giving their money for God's people. And they did more than we had hoped. They gave themselves first to the Lord. And then to us just as God wanted them to do. See generous hearts require an outward focus. It just it does. A third principle from Jesus' word for generous living is this. That we need to sow generously towards an eternal impact. We, we need to be sowing generously within causes that actually are aimed at having an eternal impact. God's word gives us three kinds of ways of giving. One, one way of giving is called the tithe. It's just simply called tithes. And, and what tithes are is from the scripture. It just means 10% of your income. That's what, that's what a tithe is. It's the first 10% of your income. And the Bible directs its followers to, to tithe. Then there, it repeated in scripture over and over again, there's this thing called offerings. And offerings are kind of what we just read about um, from this church uh, in, in Macedonia. They, they took up an offering they gave. It's kind of like the little church I, I read to you a story about a moment ago. And the, the offering was far above what you know normally people would give in in their condition and a third kind of uh, giving that the Bible speaks of generosity the Bible speaks of is this thing called an extravagant gift it's it's a special gift and that might be something that happens once or twice in your lifetime when, when God would call you to to maybe give to something big like like a, a, a building uh, fund for a church um, so many of you did that to for the what where we're seated back in you know in in the late 1990s to, to build some of you it may be about 
about giving to a mission and you just commit yourself to uh, support a, a church overseas and a pastor overseas or maybe God's calling you to provide care for somebody to, to step in to pay their medical bills or to maybe pay their rent for a year so they can get back on their feet and it, that may only happen once or twice two, two or three times in a year but I'm telling you when God leads you to do that don't overlook that don't overlook that sacrifice to make an extravagant gift because God will bless you. I can't tell you the numbers of times that I've had conversations with some of you that are a part of this church who gave generously and sacrificially, extravagantly so that this building could be built and ministry could come out of it. And how every time the baptism orders are stirred or how every time someone, you know, t gives testimony of how God's changing your life here or how people leave this place and go on missions elsewhere into our community or our, or our nation or around the world. How, how God just blesses you even today for what you did back then sacrificially, giving extravagantly to his work. He's still blessing you out of this. That's why Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, it said when someone has been given much, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. When, when God blesses, when God blesses, there's going to be so much more that he is going to ask from us. And our response should be to release that back. To, to, to let it go. That's one of the reasons that God chose instead of saying, here's an amount I want you to give, God went with a percentage. Because God wanted you to see and understand that he's going to prosper you. You know, and so if you give this percentage, even if your percentage, your, the, the amount grows, God's going to prosper you even more. Because God wants you to see his miraculous hand all throughout your giving, what he's going to do to bless that. That's why in the Old Testament... The Bible instructed people to, to, to give a tithe. Uh, Malachi chapter 3 says this. It says, bring the full amount of your tithes to the temple. That was their place of worship. So that there will be plenty. God said, bring the full amount. Now, I've had people, when we've talked about tithing uh, in our church, I've had some people kind of challenge me on that and say, now Joe, that's kind of an Old Testament thing. You know, it's, an, it's kind of tied to the law. You know, so it doesn't really apply to us. Well, I want to give you. I want to give you an illustration that I that I read to see if this connects with your heart at all. Um, anybody here ever done any babysitting? You ever done any babysitting? Okay. Anybody in here ever had a babysitter watch your kids? Anybody done that? Okay. Let's say that you have one child. You got one kid. And so you, you, you enlist this babysitter and they babysit your one child and they become kind of your regular babysitter. You're pleased with the way they do that. Well, let's say eventually over the course of time, God gives you four kids. Okay? Now you've had this babysitter and you've been paying them kind of a certain fee for the one kid. Okay? Now, I, I, want, I want to ask you a question and I want you to answer this out loud. Okay? If God has blessed you with four kids and now you have this same babysitter who's gone from watching your four kids, I mean your one kid, to now they're watching four, four kids under the age of six. Should you pay that babysitter the same thing or more? More. Okay, now you are suitable. You know, there, there are young people are saying, okay, that person said more. I want them. You know, I'll, I'll watch their kids. Um, here's the truth. We, we look at that and say, well, if God, yeah. You know, they, they, they deserve more. You know, they, they, there's more responsibility there. There's, they, they, we, we've been given more. 
Friends, if, if that works for babysitting, how much so more should it work with our faith? Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about the Old Testament. You know, those of you that want to tithe, tithing to the law. We have the new covenant now. Not the old covenant of law, but of grace. We have Jesus. We have, we have forgiveness of our sin wiped out forever. You know what the Old Testament people had? We're just going to roll your sins over one more year. We're just going to push them forward. You know, you're going to have to deal with them, but we're just going to push them forward for a year. The, the, our sins are wiped out. We have, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. Not, not maybe flittering down on us every now and then. That only happened to a few special people. But living, living in us. You have the assurance of your salvation. Of eternal life with God forever in heaven. Jesus said, I'm going to go build a place for you. He never said that to people in the Old Testament. They, were, they didn't live with that assurance. We have this promise of Jesus. No one in the Old Testament lived with that kind of, of, of strength, of heart, of faith. Now, do you think the percentages in the New Testament should be more than the Old? I mean, using that same kind of thinking about your babysitter, what do you think? See, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he's writing to the church at Corinth, he says, On every Lord's day, each of you should put aside something from what you've earned during the week and use it for this offering. The amount depends on how much the Lord has helped you earn. See, we, we should give out of how we're, we're being blessed. You have so much more than anybody in the Old Testament. So here's what I believe. The scriptures teach. Because one of the things Jesus said is, yes, you should tithe. I don't know how many times you need Jesus to say it before you buy into it. But that was one of the things Jesus said to the Pharisees. You should do this. You should, this is something you should do. Here's what I believe the New Testament teaching is this. Is that, you know, tithing is a good place to start. Sad place to finish. It's a good place to start, but sad place to finish. God's called us in the new covenant to be people of great generosity. That's what Jesus talks about, your treasure in your heart, being tied together. He ties them together. But he tells us that we need to give into causes that advance his kingdom, that advance the gospel. Because the only thing that you can take with you into eternity are people and the things you release to God. Listen, listen, to, listen to Paul's words to Timothy. Paul writes these words. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good and be generous in good deeds and be generous and willing to share. In this way you will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for this coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. Now, some of you would say, Joe, thank you for sharing that passage of, uh, of Scripture. But, you know, that, that first verse there kind of excluded me because I'm not rich. When one of our teams comes back from Cuba, or one of our teams that will be going into, you know, um, where are we going next, Dave? Ecuador. Ecuador, thank you. Kind of fell off my brain there. Um, when they come back, Please don't walk up to them and tell them that you're not rich. Because comparatively speaking to third world countries, 
you're 95%, if you're on welfare in the United States, you're 95% richer than people living in third world countries. I mean, we have all this wealth. We're rich in varying degrees, yes, in this country. But the question that Jesus asks is, where's your heart? Here's where God's heart is for you. This is where God's heart is for you. You know this verse. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave. He gave. He gave the most beautiful gift that you've ever received. He gave. That's what he calls us to do is be generous as he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come now first to thank you, God, for your goodness and your grace in our lives. To thank you for the way that you have poured yourself out for us. The way that you have given to us so generously. God, we, we just kind of started our time off thinking about how generous you have been to give us freedom in this country. To let us be born here. So we thank you for your generosity there. But Father, we also now in this moment thank you for your generosity of giving us life in Christ. And so Father, we come now listening. Seeking you to speak to our hearts about how can we be more generous? How do we move from being people that thinks somehow that it's mine so I'm going to keep it? Or maybe worse than that, it's, it's yours so I'm going to take it. How do, God, help us take one more step. All of us in this room, show us, Holy Spirit, how to take one more step to be more like you. More like one who would say, it may be mine, it may look like mine, but I'll share it with others. And God, I pray right now that maybe for the first time, maybe somebody heard that you had, you've given so much for them that you gave your only son. That they had a debt of sin they couldn't pay and the only way to be right with you was through Jesus. And he sacrificed his life so that we could have life. He was ultimately generous. And maybe where you're at, you just want to thank him for that. You want to trust him with your eternity. And you can just say, Jesus, thank you for giving so much to me. I give my life back to you now. Or maybe you're here today and you have not been on a pathway of living out a generous life as a follower of Jesus. And you want to take that first step of saying, Jesus, I'm going to begin faithfully tithing. I'm going to, I'm going to start there. Or maybe you're here today and you've been tithing and God is calling you to, to something more. To become like him who always gives more. Father, we trust that you will lead our hearts now. Lead us as we worship. Lead us as we give in worship. Lead us as we bring your tithe back and bring our offerings. We trust you, God, with it all. We trust you with our hearts as we worship now. Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9 o'clock or 11.30 services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.